You're listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. I am excited today for so many reasons. Um, but before we get to the excitement, I've got, I've got a bit of housekeeping to do. And I promise you, I will not start every episode from now on with all kinds of housekeeping stuff. But there, one of the exciting things that's happening right now is that you know John, my producer, and I work hard on the show. We've got another buddy helping us now, our friend Scott. And uh, and Scott's helping us especially with social media. And so he's he's making it possible for us to get cool things out in lots of other ways. And I want to let you know those ways. But before I tell you about any of those cool things, I want to tell you about some cool people. I want to tell you about Josh Goff and about Rachel Roth and about the couple of the year, Tim and Stephanie. And you say, well, what do all those people have in common? And the answer is this, this week, this week, on the other side of that whole hundred person push for people to support the show, those guys all signed up to be $20 a month subscribers to humanize me on Patreon. And 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 yes, they will get extra content. All the people that that support the show, there's extra content and we put out special, you know, little mini episodes and cool things for them. But more than anything, it's just it's just being part of the team and knowing that this that when you say this is your your one of your favorite podcasts or this is your podcast like it really is your podcast because you're making it possible. So Josh, Rachel, Tim, Stephanie, thank you. You can now follow the podcast on Twitter at HumanizeMePod and on Instagram at HumanizeMePodcast. So, you know, if you're into that stuff, the Instagram and the Twitter, we're there now. And we're posting stuff. I'm post giving stuff to Scott and he's posting it. It's really cool. Obviously, we already have the Humanize Me Facebook group um, that our friend Bob manages, and you ought to you ought to check that out. Patreon, I already mentioned. You just go to patreon.com backslash humanize me, or just go to Patreon and look for humanize me. I'm right there. And here's the thing: I, I really, you really want to help the show? Review us on iTunes. It gets people. It gets us higher up on a list, and then it gets suggested to people. And people are telling me like, I found your show on iTunes under humanism or under uh, spiritual growth or religion or something like that. And they found it because we have some reviews, but we need more reviews. So go ahead and do that. And actually at the end of this, at the end of this episode, we're actually having a contest for people that are willing to review the show on iTunes in which we're going to actually give away some books and some cool stuff. In fact, the book that I'm going to be talking about on the show today, we're giving away three copies of that book, um, which I'll tell you about in a second. Last thing, um, you, you know, one way to support the show is just to be in touch. You can send us a note at humanizemepodcast at gmail.com and just tell us what the show means to you or about a particular episode you liked or hated or anything. I, I, we, I would love to hear from you. Um, but the other thing you can do is you could call and leave a message on our question line, which is 424-291. 2092. And all this stuff is in the show notes. So don't worry if you're not getting it down. Just go to bartcampola.org, go to the show notes. It's there. Um, and leave a, if you leave a question, those are the questions that we use on the QA shows, which is not this week, because this week, this week, 
conversation I had with uh, Jessica Wilbanks, who is the author of the just released book, When I Spoke in Tongues. Um, I have a copy right in front of me and I got an advanced copy and I, I ended up writing to the publisher and telling them how much I loved this book. And they took my little blurb and they put it on the back cover of the, of the thing. So, you know, what I ended up saying is like, I got a lot of secular friends who are like, you didn't really believe in that stuff. Like they, they just, they, they have no, they have no kind of way of understanding the emotional landscape of what it was like to really believe in kind of the fiery faith and, and, and uh, the, what, what it means to really fear the Lord. And Jessica Wilbanks in this book, it's the story of her growing up in, in faith, in a very, very charismatic fundamentalist family. But it's not like just to like, this is how I lost my faith and this is a book story. It's, it's a memoir. It's Mary Carr or Anne Lamott. It's that kind of quality of writing. It's so beautiful. And, and you'll figure out how beautiful Jessica's language is when you listen to this conversation. So stick around afterwards and uh, I'll tell you how you can win a copy of the book. And, and be patient because there are some clicks and noises that happened when we were recording this thing. And John did did his best with the audio engineering, but like we just couldn't get him out of there. And so, you know, I honestly, I think the conversation is worth listening to. I think you're going to like it. Um, but if you want to complain, don't say I didn't warn you. All right, here we go. This is me and Jessica Wilbanks chopping it up. So, so I'm sitting in Cincinnati right now. Where are you sitting? So I'm in my um, home office in Houston, Texas, um, which I can't believe I live in Texas. You know, as, as you know, I grew up in Southern Maryland and um, I moved to Houston about 10 years ago for grad school. Never thought I would stay. And now I'm raising a three-year-old here. So yeah, life takes you on a lot of twists and turns. Yeah. Well that, and that, that would be the story of your life, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I, I read the story of your life and <laughs> I, I like, you know, I, I was, I was just jotting down topics we could talk about and like that, that like I pick up, I picked up reading your yeah, book yeah. and I was like, well, we could talk about charismatic Christianity or psychedelic drugs. We could talk about <laughs> lesbianism or bisexuality, parenthood yeah, or, yeah. or perhaps Nigeria. Um, yeah, you know, I was just like, what the heck is going on here? <laughs> there's a lot. There's a lot. There's a lot. Well, I, I have to say, you know, maybe to start, so maybe a couple of days before I sent you an email out of the blue, um, I was on Twitter and I had started, you know, realizing in the past couple of months that there's this whole community of um, ex-Christians, which I had never known before I wrote the book. And I saw that you were among them. And I remember I was sitting in my husband's office. Um, so I had gone there to do some writing on a day that school was closed and we had a sitter. And I remember just sitting in front of the computer screen and my jaw had literally dropped because, you know, when I was a kid, I remember hearing your name and your dad's name. And the idea that someone like you had also walked away from the church was was just so incredibly powerful. So I feel like that was this pivotal moment where I realized that, wow, there's a lot of us out there. Um, but I've always felt so alone, you know, in that identity of growing up Christian and then leaving everything that I knew. Um, and not really looking back until fairly recently when I started writing the book. I'm so glad you had that. Ex I mean, I I'm so glad you had that experience. Um, <laughs> Because you're right, like in some yeah. ways you have to see somebody 
who you knew on the inside. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Or you knew about on the inside to believe that people, like you knew, you, we always knew there were people on the outside. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. But but they weren't like, they weren't like us. There was like this impermeable barrier. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and I think, I think of all the things that are so hard to communicate about, you know, a childhood growing up in the church and, and not just any church, but, but one of the more intense churches of the country um, is just how removed you feel from every other person in the world. You know, I, there's this part of my book where I talk about um, being part of our church's live nativity scene. So um, my brothers and my parents and I were all dressed up and we were watching the cars go by on the highway, you know, um, maybe 30 yards below us. And it just felt like these were people who, you know, we were we were so close physically, but we were worlds away from them. You know, we were nothing like them. They had yet to have this incredible conversion moment that would transform everything. And, you know, that's how that's how I saw everyone in the world, you know, except the people who were in in our specific church, not just other Christians. And I feel like that's something that's a little bit hard for some of my friends who grew up in kind of tamer Protestant churches, <laughs> you know, right. they say they, they, they don't quite understand that big barrier. But, you know, I was really taught to I was taught that we were nothing like, you know, the Catholics down the street or the folks who went to the Methodist church. You know, we were we were special. We were peculiar people. Um, and that gave me so much strength and confidence as a kid. And then when I left that, you know, my life fell apart for a while because I didn't, I didn't know what to hang on to. Well, you know, it's so, so funny that you mentioned that idea. Cause I, I remember actually re in reading the book, there's a moment where pastor Jim in your, in your church is talking about the other Christians, like, and they yeah, think yeah. this and they think, like, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, and I was, I was thinking, cause the other night I was watching Sarah Silverman's new TV show. Uh -huh. um, it's on Hulu. It's about something about, Hello America or something like that, where she tries to connect with people that are very different than her. Yeah. And um, one of the guests she had to come talk with her was this young woman who had grown up in the Westboro Baptist Church. Wow. And they showed pictures of her holding those signs, you know, the God hates yeah. bags and all of that stuff. And this young woman became the Westboro Church's social media coordinator. And in that context, she, she was, it was, it was her first contact, extended contact with people outside. Yeah. Yeah. And eventually one of the trolls, one of the people that was like saying like, you're wrong, you're crazy. You're st like, they started talking and that person ended up being a very nice man yeah. who not only helped pull her out, but she ended up marrying. Wow. <laughs> wow. And she is this lovely activist now yeah. sort of for love and kindness. But what was interesting was she was describing the isolation that she felt. Yeah. And she said, yeah. you know, we thought we were love we thought we thought we were loving everybody by doing yeah, this stuff. Absolutely. We thought this was the best we could do. Yeah. I, I read I read some article maybe I think in the Washington Post that was this wonderful profile of some of the folks who went to a pretty small, I think it was maybe a Baptist church um, somewhere in the South. And how they kind of reconciled some of Trump's current behavior and his, you know, previous experiences with women and the yeah. things that he said about immigrants with, for instance, you know, the Bible verse about loving the stranger. And this this line jumped out at me. It was something like, um, you know, well, they're not talking about, you know, 
the Mexican stranger. They're talking about the American stranger, you know, somebody like us, like somebody who needs help, who's like us. And, and I, I just like, I can remember doing those kinds of kind of mental gymnastics as a kid in order to try to understand, you know, why certain things were wrong and, you know, why, why the church made such a big deal about some sins, like, you know, homosexuality or premarital sex, but other sins weren't a big deal at all. Um, so, yeah, I think I think it's really hard for folks to understand just just that sense of isolation and also the stakes of um, thinking, trying to weigh um, like the stakes of trying to get outside of that for a minute. You know, like I didn't have friends who went to those other Christian churches. I didn't have you know, atheist friends, you know, I certainly didn't, we didn't watch TV, we didn't listen to popular music, we didn't listen to the radio, like it was such a kind of curated existence. And I think that was another reason why, you know, when I left, I I was just in a new world. And I was like an infant in that world, you and know, utterly, and I think un- other, utterly unprepared, yeah, yeah. utterly unprepared. Yeah, utterly unprepared. And I think like what I realized um, later was, even though I left the church when I was 15 and I really, you know, had made up my mind that this was no longer the path for me, but I kind of defaulted to this perspective that, okay, if, if that's, you know, if that's a loving community, if this is the way to be a good person, you know, by going to church, by not smoking, by not drinking all these different, you know, um, ways to be pure. Then if I'm outside of that, I might as well, you know, throw everything up in the air. You know, it doesn't matter if I smoke. It doesn't matter if I drink. It doesn't matter. Nothing matters, you know, um, and yeah, it took you, me you, a long. Yeah, yeah. You rejected that lifestyle, but you accepted you, you held on to the binary that they had given you. It, we're like, exactly, we're the good exactly. guys and yeah. everyone else is the bad guys. So if like you're not with us, you're you might as well be a bad guy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think like. Like I still bought into that story, you know, <laughs> even though I said, okay, yes. I'm not, I'm not going to be on the inside anymore, but that's, that was still my worldview. And the funny thing is I didn't realize it, you know, I, like I, I recently, my mom just moved after 20 years in the same house and kept pretty much every piece of paper from <laughs> the past 20 years. So I was helping her go through some paperwork recently and I found this college application essay that I wrote. And at the time I wrote it, I was, I think, a senior in high school. Um, I had already kind of disidentified, you know, as a Christian. And and I was reading this little portion of the essay in which I talk about myself and who I am and where I come from. And there isn't any specificity in it whatsoever. Like, I just saw myself as a teenager. And when I went to college, I just saw myself as similar to my peers who grew up, you know, outside of the church, who even if they like had some small disagreements with their parents about, you know, stuff relating to morality or worldview, it wasn't a, going to college wasn't a critical break for them. You know, like they were the same person at college that they had been been able to be at home. And I think for me and for other folks, you know, who were crossing a divide of some kind by going from high school to college, like I'm thinking of, you know, a friend of mine who um, grew up in New Mexico and had never lived on the East Coast before. And, you know, she she was in for, you know, <laughs> a very different world going from New Mexico, you know, a land of like her parents, friends were hippies to, you know, Western Massachusetts. And then also a lot of um, a lot of friends of mine 
who grew up in the African-American community and were suddenly in a majority white school with a lot of white professors. I think a lot of us were really grappling with the fact that to get an education, we had to leave the world that we had known. Um, I think that's a pretty common phenomenon that we don't really talk about. Well, you know, you, you mentioned um, a phrase early in the book that that struck me. You talked about, um, oh gosh, what was the name? What was the phrase? It was called, oh, the loss of an assumptive world. Yeah, yeah. And and, yeah. and, and I think like, I, I know, you know, where you're like, the, the world you grew up in, like everything is this way. And when you lose- yeah. You know, for some people, it's like my, my, my both my parents are killed in a, in a fiery yes, car accident. Yes. I go like, oh my gosh, my world is over. Like, and everything that I expected is gone or like the, the, a physical disease that messes with your body. Exactly. But for people like you and, and me to some degree, it was the loss of faith where you go like, oh, look, what is this? Like, like everything is different. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I, I found that phrase in literature about grief and bereavement. And I think out of everything that I've read, it just hits so hard because um, to some extent, I think I've been grieving all these years, but I, I didn't know it. You know, like there's another part in the book where... Um, 10 years have passed since my kind of nervous breakdown in college after that transition. And I, you know, I'm doing okay. I'm, I'm in graduate school. I've been um, able to kind of thrive somewhat, you know, on the outside, but life just doesn't feel meaningful. Um, and I, there's this moment where I run into this guy that I know, um, this poet who lives in Houston and just, you know, coincidentally, he also grew up, um, you know, in in kind of a more evangelical um, worldview. And that's the story from the book about how he came home from school one day and his family was gone. You know, his mom stayed home with his brothers and sisters. Her purse was there, you know, dinner or lunch was on the table, but everyone was gone. And he thought, oh my God, of course, they've all been raptured. You know, <laughs> like it was just this incredible moment of like, I know exactly what you're talking about. You know, I, that was my, I, I remember lying awake at night in bed when I was a kid and worrying about, you know, when Jesus returned, would I be able to, to not give in to temptation? You know, would I be taken up with my family? Um, and yeah, I think like that, that feeling, that fear kind of gets in your bones. And even as an adult, um, <laughs> you remember it. And I think that was like, like that comes toward the second part of my book where I finally kind of start to grapple with the fact that this big transition of leaving the church when I was 15 has actually colored my life in so many ways that I just had just begun to understand. Um, so yeah, I think like, like, it's funny that I was able to ignore the impact that it had on me for so long. But yeah, I just didn't like there wasn't this attention that there seems to be nowadays of um, all these Facebook groups popping up of, you know, ex-Christians or ex-evangelicals. -ex it, it was a very lonely space. Yeah, I had I'd, I had never heard the story of someone who had grown up in that worldview and then tried to live in another world. And, you know. It's it's still a very lonely place for a lot of people, and we can talk about that, you know. And I think you're right. I think you're right in saying that, like the social media stuff and everything, makes it easier for people to find each other now than it was when you were going through it. Yeah. Um, but it's still hard for people to find face to face, flesh and blood contact. 
Yes. And it's a lot of the work that I'm involved with is trying to create spaces and motivate people to create communities where people can, can find each other. But I want to back up a second because this book that you've written, to me, like the reason I was so enthusiastic about it and am so enthusiastic about it is because I get lots of, this is how I left Christianity accounts sent to me, lots of them. <laughs> Either in either in long emails or in self published books or like I, I my my shelves are full, um, and there's a sameness to many of them, where they are there are people writing about their tortured relationship with the church or their tor- tortured relationship with the doctrine, um, and 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 the pain of leaving family and friends and 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 stuff and the trauma is all there. But your book, and I feel like your your conversation is really much more of what it's like not to lose your relationship with the church, but to lose your like to lose your relationship with God. And and so many of my friends who are really bright, well educated, secular people, yeah. they cannot <laughs> imagine any scenario under which they could genuinely believe in God, let alone you know, l- l- yeah. let alone. Um, hear his voice or be swept up in religious ecstasy. And in your book, you know, like it's called When I Spoke in Tongues and speaking in tongues is the the pinnacle, you know, yeah. that's when you know you've really got it. Yeah. And, and, and so I guess what I wanted you to talk about a little bit was growing up in a church where the Holy Spirit was such a real and palpable force and, and, and I guess what I'm wondering is like, is, is speaking in tongues a metaphor for you of this big thing? Or was that like really the center of the action? That's a great question. I think, I think it was the center of the action, <laughs> you know, um, but so, so in our church, so it was, it was one of the first mega churches in the country. So um, Bishop John Jimenez was this. Um, former drug addict who then, you know, became saved and founded Rock Christian Fellowship. And our church, Rock Church of Southern Maryland, was one of these small offshoots of that. Um, pastor Jim, um, you know, my childhood pastor, who is actually still going strong at, in the pulpit. Um, Praise the Lord. Yeah. <laughs> he, <laughs> so he was sent out to, to see the church in Southern Maryland. Um, and I think I think what was so attractive to him, so I think the church that my parents attended right before Rock Church was an Assemblies of God church. And I think, you know, that's that's a church that I have fond memories of in many ways. I remember, you know, doing Sunday school and children's pageants. But I think the attractive thing for our family about Rock Church was here was a place where we were we were doing it all from scratch. You know, there was a man with a vision, Pastor Jim, and a small flock of people um, at that time, the church, you know, man, I was so young. I don't remember exactly how many people were there, but honestly, probably no more than maybe a hundred regular attendees. Um, were, were they all working class? Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. I think, you know, there were a few people who I think we all saw as more middle class um, people who <laughs> dressed a little bit nicer and had nicer cars, but it was very much a working class church. The other really unusual thing about it, which again, I had no idea was unusual until I got older, was that it was multiracial. Um, so it was probably, there were probably 
slightly more white people than people of color, but not by a long shot. And a lot of the guest wow. pastors that came in, some of the church leadership, um, you know, all of that was very multiracial. And that was just what I knew. You know, when you're a kid, you don't know any better and you don't know that that's unusual. So, um, so all that to say, I think it wasn't just speaking in tongues. I think speaking in tongues is kind of the essence of this worldview in which um, there's a deep belief that if you can just kind of melt your cold heart and be vulnerable with God, you know, put it all on the table in front of him, um, surrender your ego um, and, and be willing to not just have that moment of real conversion, but also change your daily behavior, then, you know, you're in for a lifetime of worldly and heavenly rewards. So miracles. Yeah. Miracles. Yeah. You know, and, and in ways that you never expect, you know, like, like the world that I lived in in those days was a world in which, you know, when we drove to the grocery store and, you know, found a dollar in the parking lot, that was a miracle. You know, when, when there was a sale and we were able to buy groceries for just the amount of money that my mom had left in her wallet, that was a miracle. Um, and I think that like the thing about Pentecostalism and the reason why it's so hard to leave in so many ways and why so many people stay is because everything that happens is a validation of your worldview. You know, you, you, you give a little bit more than you maybe should on Sunday. And then when someone, you know, when you unexpectedly get blessed by someone a few days later, that confirms, you know, what you suspected that, that you are, that God is watching you carefully. You have a personal relationship with God. And I think that moment of speaking in tongues, like I, I, I was really careful about not exoticizing it in the book because, you know, I still, I still have such an emotional reaction to thinking about those moments. Like there's something to me so beautiful and so transcendent and so embodied you know i'm somebody who really spends a lot of time in my mind you know i love to read i think through things you know i can sometimes ignore emotions but that was a moment where you know there wasn't i wasn't there you know it was it was a body rea bodily reaction and i felt at the time that it was the holy spirit and that was i mean it doesn't get better than that you know whether you're a kid or an adult um so yeah well, no, that i always was, say yeah. that like when you have a transcendent experience like we those things are real like, yeah, like science absolutely. scientists yeah. can spot them in the brain and like yeah, you know yeah. when you have that transcendent experience of ego dissolution or whatever you want to call yes. it whether it's with lsd yeah. or at a, at a rock concert or when you're at high altitude in nature um it validates whatever narrative you're working with. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the difference between, you know, Christianity, I mean, there's many differences between Christianity and like an acid trip. But one of the one of the big differences is like all those other things that you named, like the rock concert, the, you know, getting to the top of a mountain peak, you know, and being exhausted, but having this feeling of accomplishment, like all of those are the also transcendent bodily experiences. But to get back to your earlier point about community, when you have this kind of experience in community, I mean, that that is incredible. The fact that like you're not just going through this this really peak experience in which 
um, you know, body and mind are united and you feel like you're in touch with a higher power, but you're doing it next to hundreds of people who are having the same experience, you know? And I think that's like, that's incredible. Like I keep, I keep thinking about this. Part of my book was this research into the early days of the Pentecostal church. And there's this wonderful line um, that someone said in the days of Azusa street. Um, so the first, you know, revival in, in Southern California in which, um, you know, the spirit of God really entered this very small congregation where many, you know, white American Christians at the time would least expect to be blessed with this kinds of experience. You know, like William Seymour, who was the pastor um, of Azusa Street at the time, um, he was he was actually someone who had been kicked out of Bible school by Charles Parham. Like when he went to Bible school, actually in Houston, um, William Seymour, because he was black, was forced to sit in the hall. Um, so this is, you know, this other moment where like, that, that's a whole other, <laughs> that's a whole other story. But um, like, there's this right. quote that, that someone said about Azusa Street. They said, I would rather live six months. Or, I would la- rather live um, six months in that time than a year in ordinary time. You know, like there's, it's just this, this intensity of experience, this, this moment where you feel like you're really in sync with people you're touched by God. Um, those moments of revival are so powerful, and I think that's yeah, in and the, you're yeah. part of something. You're part of something that is palpably bigger than yourself. Exactly. Where you go, like exactly. I had this. Did you almost like? Did you see that? And the person next to you goes like, Yes. Yeah. You know, like I saw it. Like, did you feel that? I felt it. And, yeah. and you go like, The earthquake was real. We were yeah, all there. Exactly. And, exactly. And, and you know, it's funny because in a lot of the work that I'm doing now with community building, I'm trying. I'm going like, you know, those experiences are amazing they're bonding yeah and they're not that hard to manufacture (laughs) and so like and and, and people go like well so that's why we should beware them i'm like no that's why we should manufacture them absolutely and we should be open about what we're doing here and sort of go like you know what we know it's good if we feel connected to each other if we create these kind of experiences we will feel connected to each other we will we know like in terms of our environment and our economy, we know we are all interconnected and our well-being is wrapped up in each other's. Mm-hmm. Let's create some experiences that make that palpable. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, strangely, one of the spaces where I felt that the strongest is in political organizing. So um, so when I was, I guess in like, was it 2004, um, I volunteered for three months um, with Move On. And I was a campaign organizer in St. Petersburg, Florida. So for three months, I just, you know, we slept on, I slept on the floor of an elderly couple who were members of like Move On's list and just volunteered their living room floor, you know, for somebody who would come in and volunteer. And it was this, this period of time where, you know, for 12 hours a day, 14 hours a day, I was on the phone, you know, calling people every night we would have a community meeting, you know, we would spend all day on the phone saying, Hey, you know, do you want to beat Bush? Can you come out tonight to, you know, learn how you can help people would show up based on that. We had to call, you know, thousands of people to get a group of 25. And then, you know, that night we would, we would, you know, have an experience together where we would talk about what we wanted to change, what everyone's individual role was, and we would send them out the next day, you know? And I think it's no coincidence that that 
that kind of intense experience is similar to Christianity because at least in my parents' church, they like this wasn't all like a feel good experience. They also had a lot of structures that enabled continual recruitment, you know, a lot of like big asks from people, like even working class people were giving, um, were tithing, were giving offerings, were showing up, you know, on the weekend or one day off to help literally build the church. And I think the thing that really like sticks out at me about all that is, you know, we don't get a lot of moments in this culture to really feel like we're part of something that matters um, and we're working for a higher purpose and we're doing it in a community. Um, And that's why, so my day job is um, I work on um, community engagement within school systems and school districts around the country and helping districts and schools think about how they can really partner with families and community organizations and kids and all work together toward the same goal instead of kind of operating in silos and yeah, to me, that's like very, this is all vestiges of my upbringing, you know, like to me, that's what, yeah, that's one yeah. of the most rewarding parts about life is, you know, when you can come together for a reason and a purpose that's bigger than just your individual we, and, ego. And, and it's interesting because that you're working with parents that way, because, you know, in, in reading your book and, and, and going, thinking through your story, your parents are such huge characters in the story. And 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 yeah, and not yeah. in the not in the stereotypical way of like these hyper religious jamming it down your throat every five seconds people. I mean, they were deeply into it, but yet throughout the book, yeah. it feels like yeah. in a weird way they're also planting the seeds of your independence. Hmm. And I don't know if you, like like I don't know if I've seen that. <laughs> No, maybe and maybe I'm misreading. Convinced, yeah, no, no, no. But like, I see these moments where they pull you out as an individual. Like, you go for a walk on the beach with your dad, and like he talks to you. Yeah. Or or right before you go to college, he sits you down and says, "Like the world is a wondrous place." Yeah. And like, then he says a lot of things that aren't true. But, (laughs) but, but I feel like your parent, like, and and like when you said, like, I was helping my mom clean out her house, like. It's clear to me that you're still connected to them. Yeah, yeah. And like, even when, I mean, like for a minute in this book, it feels like their bigger problem isn't with your loss of faith. It's with your relationship with a woman. Yeah, yeah. And yet they seem to find a way to not, they don't pull the old, you can't, we're not speaking to you. Yeah, yeah. They stay engaged. And so I feel like there's some sense in which your parents... Their their role in your life doesn't feel simple. Yeah, I I it, totally really agree with that. Yeah, part of what like to go back to this moment a few months ago where I was going through all this paper, you know, in my mom's house, like like I it was really interesting to to kind of have that like at such a remove, you know, like now I have my own home, I am raising my own son. I'm kind of firmly lodged in another world and to have the opportunity to kind of go back and kind of dig through our family archives. Like I found so many interesting things. Like I found like a booklet that's called like how to parent your homosexual child. You know, I was like, Oh my God. Like, and then I also found like um, all these letters that, you know, um, that I wrote to my family when I was going through all these really hard times. And, and I think, 
I think the really amazing thing about my family is just the depth of love that has always existed. And at times, you know, I feel like, like I had to distance myself from that, that, that intense love that they had for me, because it was hard to imagine what it would look like, you know, in that kind of insular household to be on my own in the world, you know, and it turned out that a lot of my dreams included going to spaces that, you know, the rest of my family didn't end up going to, you know, I, I went from Southern Maryland, which is, you know, an extremely rural and extremely conservative community to a college in New England where, you know, um, there are no grades or tests or majors. And most of my classmates were, were definitely, you know, not people of faith or, you know, Christians. And, and I think that, I think all of those things were, I think my dad is an interesting character in all of this because he, he was thrilled about a lot of that, you know, like he, he loved that I was getting out. He's an adventurer at heart. Um, and he, some of his most amazing moments in his life were when he had these little glimpses into the bigger, larger world. So he ended up, he was in Vietnam for just a couple of months working as a lab technician. So not in, you know, a lot of physical danger. And he talks about that experience all the time, like just the magic of going to another place where people eat differently and speak differently. And, and he just, he just got so much out of that, you know? So I don't think, I think like it's so easy to dwell in stereotypes and, you know, everyone that I talked to about my family when I was in college, you know, kind of thought of as like redneck bumpkins who were bigoted and, you know, prejudiced. But for instance, like a lot of, I realized that, you know, our church was multiracial and a lot of my classmates had never been in those multiracial spaces as a kid, even growing up very progressive. So yeah, it's never as simple as, as one thinks. You know, it's funny. There's this great scene at the end of your book where you're, as an adult, you're back in your parents' church and their pastor calls you out and he's going to, he's going to pull you forward and he's going to, you know, bring you back to Jesus in front of everybody and you won't go up. And he comes down and he's yelling at you and your mother steps in. <laughs> and it's a remarkable moment. Yeah, it really is. It really is. Like as it was happening. I mean, was it that dramatic? Did she yeah, actually, I mean, yeah. like, was it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not blowing that thing up, right? Like no. she stood up and was like, leave her alone. Yeah, she was. And and the thing about my mom, like my mom is 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 not that kind of woman most of the time. You know, like she, she has a challenge with stuttering, you know, it's, it's often hard for her to, to speak in front of groups because, you know, she, she doesn't trust her voice, but she was so confident in that moment, you know, and it was the last thing that I expected to happen. Um, and it meant, it meant so much to me. Um, it, you know, this was, this was a moment where I really felt like, okay, I, I see where her allegiances are. Um, And at the same time, like, I think, like, I think a lot about the fact, like, my parents were very devout um, when I was younger. Um, They, you know, we went to church three or more times a week. We, you know, we were so embedded in the church and Rock Church of Southern Maryland. um, Some, at some point when I was a teenager, I think probably when I was like, just after kind of, I, I decided to kind of leave Christianity. Um my parents left that church um, and it had to do with a lot of 
authoritarian behavior on the part of the pastor. Um, people were getting kicked out for kind of small doctrinal reasons and, and, you know, something wasn't quite right. And I think my parents had always struggled with that. And my dad, you know, as you see from the book, is, is a pretty passionate guy and not someone who's easily pushed around. So he had kind of one fight too many with the pastor and then they left. And from that point forward, you know, they're, they're still, you know, deep believers and, you know, God is very important to them, but they haven't really found a church community in quite the same way, you know, and, footing. and I do wonder, like, like I think about what would happen if I wrote this book and shared it with my parents when they were still so embedded in the church. Um, and if they had to have a conversation about their pastor, you know, with it. So the church in which this, this thing happened was actually my younger brother's church. Um, it wasn't my parents' church. And yeah, like, I, I think it's tough because I think, I think it would be a lot harder for them to grapple with the public perception of me kind of in their eyes, airing a lot of my dirty laundry, you know, talking in the public sphere about my sexuality, about, you know, this uh, psychedelic drugs, like all of these things. I think that would have been a lot more embarrassing for them if they were still so intertwined in the church. Yeah, no, I, th I think it's, I mean, it's funny because my dad is huge in the church yeah. all yeah. around the country, all around the world. Yeah. But he doesn't have this one community that is his community that he has to go face down every week. Yes. Yes. And, you know, I, th I think that makes it, <laughs> I, I, I know that makes it a little bit easier for him. Not that it's easy. Yeah. But like, you know, for, what's funny is like that experience of your mom, like for me, when my dad, um, you know, sort of, was willing to make this documentary film yeah. that we made. Yeah. Um, Cause like in the documentary film, like what shines through is he's like, I think you're wrong, but I'm proud of you. Yeah. Yeah. And I like, I like you. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm okay with you and I yeah. think you're a good man. Yeah. And I'm like, for many Christians, that would be a hard, you know, like that was a, almost like he was being just to acknowledge my humanity and your um, and your honesty, you know, like like something that really stuck with me from your your book, and that that book meant so much to me. Like I I haven't told you, but I actually um, like as a as a um, as a young woman, like probably in my early twenties, um, I had a brief stint as an interfaith organizer for nuclear disarmament, um, and and I um, had was involved in a lot of efforts to um, help religious leaders of all different faiths to speak out against you know, nuclear weapons. So um, I actually organized an event with your dad in um, Omaha, Nebraska, and ended up taking him to the airport afterwards. <laughs> and, and it was so wonderful because a lot of, a lot of, you know, national religious leaders are not the same people one-on-one -on -one that they are, you know, you know, from the pulpit. And and your dad is not oh, yeah. that person. Like he's, he's just so thoughtful, so sweet, kind, man. you know, really interested in everyone yeah. that he, he came across. And I think to see, you know, your conversation in that book and to see him respecting your commitment to principles, um, you know, the fact that, you know, you, you didn't want to hide, you know, you, and you weren't able to not acknowledge who you were. And I think that really, that that really meant a lot to me, and I actually 
bought another copy of that book for my mother <laughs> um, and it really encouraged her to read it in hopes that you know she'll <laughs> she'll get past some of her her shame about you know me coming out as a non-believer yeah the, in, in a sense i feel like my dad's saying like listen if you're really a christian you know and yeah. your kid doesn't believe in god yeah you yeah. want them to be pursuing goodness in a secular yes. way you you yes. want yes. them to be banding together with other people to ask how can i have more loving relationships how can yeah. i be a better spouse or a better parent or a better kid yeah. like you know my dad's like you know, w w you know, he, he said, when I was a professor, you know, I would see these students going off on waste in their lives, doing, making rich yeah. people richer and stuff. He said, would I rather have them off there? Or would I rather have them with you and your humanists trying to figure out how to, you know, save the world? Yeah. And he's like, of course, I'd rather have them be with you. But, but I feel like your dad is one of those rare, rare people who are, who are so, you know, committed to biblical truth. And at the same time, can even imagine that good can exist on that on that secular, on the other side of that secular divide, you know, like, I think, like, like I remember growing up and, and having some conversation with an elder at our church and trying to understand, like, why it was just so explicitly wrong to listen to the radio, you know, and listen to secular music. And I was like, wait a second, like, are you saying that if a song doesn't explicitly glorify God, it's a sinful song. And they're like, yeah, that's, that's what I'm saying. I'm like, what about like row, row, row your boat? You know, like, isn't this, there's this realm of like moral neutrality and children's music, you know, and, and other things. And I feel like, I feel like for many people, um, like, I feel like this is part of why we're such a divided society right now is like, it's so hard for, for people on both sides. Um, and especially for people who are really locked into these kind of high cost religious groups like the Pentecostal church, it's hard for them to imagine that um, there can be people who are doing good work without, you know, being inspired by God. You know, like I think a lot of the people that I grew up with were kind of just waiting for the fall, you know, like they, they wouldn't have celebrated the fact that, oh, you know, someone, at least they're not, you know, out there, you know, living, you know, life of crime, like at least they're helping people. And like, I feel like there would have been real suspicion that anything that wasn't explicitly um, Christian could be good. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah. And you know, y your story is very, was very painful for me to read um, the, the middle part. Yeah. The part where you've got anorexia yeah. and, you know, and, and, and you don't even really know it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, 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 and not the, the, the part about the, the relationship with the woman, that doesn't seem like a, a horrible trauma yeah. to you, but like, it does seem to me like, I, I mean, like, I don't, like, I don't know how you look at that now. Like, do you think like, well, I'm bisexual or do you think like that was me just trying stuff? <laughs> no, I, I do think of myself as bisexual. Um, and I'm, I'm married to a man. Um, and I recently like went to a work conference and you know, showed up at the LGBTQ affinity group feeling a little bit like a fraud because, because I'm so, <laughs> I'm so locked into my, you know, very normative heterosexual life right now. But, um, but I think like that, that encounter really surprised me as a kid. Like I, I really, I really wasn't expecting to have, you know, romantic feelings for my friends. And yet when it was happening, it was amazing. You know, it was wonderful. And I think like I have had relationships with women since then. Um, but I, and I, I think I, 
I believe that, you know, for many people, not not everybody, um, I feel like sexuality is much more of a spectrum than we admit. Um, and I think there's a lot of cultural pressure um, at play there. And, you know, that might be shifting yeah, I'm a getting, bit. I'm, in, I mean, I'm definitely getting there where I go like, it's a spectrum. Yeah. And I think, I think it's perhaps like, because I mean, like, like gender culture in the U.S. is just so unbelievably powerful. Like having a three-year-old, I, I am so aware of, you know, how quickly children are, you know, acculturated to, to go in specific directions, you know, and I'm always kind of checking myself about, you know, the toys that I buy for my son and kind of my, you know, you catch all these things that people say about like, oh, you know, a girl would do this, you know, and, and I think like, so to go back to your question, like that experience of, you know, um, having this, having this affair with my best friend, my parents finding out about it. And, and I think like what, what is saddest to me now is just how, how incredibly shamed, ashamed I felt, you know, in that year. So there was a year between when my parents found out about that and when I went to college where I felt very free to, you know, be with anyone that I wanted to. Um, and I just like, I, I, I don't know if I ever, like, I think I had a few small conversations with that woman, um, after my, my mom confronted me. Um, and I found out later that my mom actually confronted her also and tried to have a conversation about what happened. And, I, I just feel like it's so sad. You know, I was, I was so ashamed. I was so, I was so humiliated that my parents, because I knew like, even though I didn't think that, you know, being gay was a sin, I knew that the strength and potency and just how bad and how, just how completely unacceptable that was, you know, like I, like I read in the book that, you know, my parents would have probably understood if, you know, I had slept with a guy, if I had come home pregnant, like that would have been within the realm of what they imagined as a possibility. But like I said, like I, I didn't like reach for the apple, <laughs> you know, I didn't just like sin. I reached for the snake. Like I, I went so far outside of <laughs> what they felt was like safe and comfortable. And I'm a very like, I'm kind of a people pleaser, you know, like that was just so like knowing what they felt about me and feeling like the weight of not their disappointment, but their horror, their disgust, you know, like, and yet on the other awful. hand, yeah. there you are, you're, there you are, you're a kid and you're with, because of the face stuff going on, like you're, you're isolated within an, and like, yeah. I would imagine that that best friend was the closest person to you yeah. in the world yeah. at that moment. Like, it's just crazy. Like I like, like telling you this now, like I, it's just so insane that I didn't immediately go to college and get into like good therapy. You know, like I, I, but I didn't see any of this as like, like I kind of kids just go along with whatever happens, you know? And like, like I didn't realize how traumatic it was at the moment. Like it, oh, I, I, no, yeah. I, I believe you. Yeah. I believe you. Cause I sit with college kids all the time and they'll tell, and I'll, they'll tell me their story. Yeah. Like in a matter of fact way. And I'll be like, this is huge. Like, no, I know. Like, you're, yeah. you're amazing for sitting <laughs> here for, for just like, and like, 
we, listen, you got to take yourself seriously. Like this, this pain is real. It has to be dealt. And, and they're going like, why are you making such I a know, big deal? All I'm I telling know. you is, is that my uncle used to sleep with me when I was 10 years I old know. all the time. Or all I'm telling you is, is that like my parents told me I was worthless trash and going to burn in hell from the time I was six years old. Like, and they're like, <laughs> but like everybody, that's a, isn't that everybody's life? I mean, everybody just, struggles with their parents. It's insane. It's insane that kids. Like kids think every anything that happens to them, like they don't they don't know what to expect. You know, like only when we've been around for a while are we like more in touch with like like normality. You know, like what's acceptable and what's not. So like I know it's just so sad. Like, and I I I'm so I'm, I'm yeah, sorry. That's yeah. what made me sad when I was reading your stuff. Not that you had this relationship, but sure, like sure. But that was yeah. the only person available to you. I know. That, like in I any know. way could I like I I just. You know, I said when I was telling somebody about your book and I was saying like, this is really a great book for anyone. I don't care what it is. Like if if, if, you grew up feeling different from the people that they love the most. Yes. Like like, here are these people I love and I'm different. I'm not (laughs) one of them. And and I just, I think like one of the most healing things that can happen to somebody is when they wander into a group of people and they go like, oh, this is a thing. Yeah, like, absolutely. Like, it's like, oh, there are other transsexuals or, oh, there are other black people that grew up in white yeah. households or, oh, yeah. there are, you know, wh- whatever your thing is, to, you know, oh, there are other people that like love pursuing goodness and just want to be, they just want, and they do, but they can't <laughs> believe in God. Like, like the, the experience of going like, I'm not the only one is so powerful. And like for you, it took a long time before you walked into that room. Yes, yes. Uh, you said something earlier when you were talking about um, instead of reaching for the apple, I reach for the snake. And I thought, ah, oh, that woman has a way with words. Yeah. yeah. And she, she, you know, a way with images and things. And like, I, I, I enjoyed, <laughs> I enjoyed reading your book so much. Thank you so much for taking all this time to talk with me. I, I enjoyed this conversation so much. <laughs> oh, good, good. What's funny is like in my preaching days, you know, I spent time in churches like yours. Yeah, yeah. You know, there are a lot of people that are going to read your book and it's going to be like reading a book about somebody who grew up among the wolves in, in, in Alaska. And they're going to be like, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I, like I, you know, but they, but they won't be able to say that rings true yeah, because like they never were, you know. But it, it sure rang true for me. Oh, well, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. And- Talking with you is been great yeah and and it like i said before it really feels like like this is coming full circle you know having like your name was was definitely one that i knew and and one that i assigned to that other world of of christianity so i'm i'm so excited that we're that we're both outside of the church but still loving the people we love who are who are still committed to that and also really thinking about you know a way to live differently so yeah thank you so much for having the struggle All right. That was it. That was my conversation with Jessica Wilbanks, and I hope you liked it. Um, And if you did like it, the contest is, if you review our program on on iTunes this week, and then you take a screenshot of that review, and you email it to us at humanizemepodcast at gmail.com. All of this is in the show notes. And if you do that before Sunday, November 18th at midnight, We're going to pick three of those folks and send them a beautiful hard copy, hard copy of Jessica Wilbank's book, When I Spoke in Tongues. 
And so honestly, you have a really good chance. I don't know how many people are going to do it. Maybe only three people will do it. You all get books. I don't know. But even if you don't get a book, you'll be helping the show and maybe helping somebody find the show that could use the show. And so uh, you can consider an act of service. Um, oh yeah, one last thing. You know that movie John made, Leaving My Father's Faith, about me and my dad and all that stuff? Most of you have probably seen it somewhere. But if you haven't, it's now available for rental on Amazon Prime for just $2.99. And so if you want to find out how to get it, just go to campolofilm.com um, you know, or email the show. You can do whatever you want. Like we're very responsive. Um, and it's kind of fun to say we. It's now it's me and John and we got Scott helping out and Bob on the Facebook page. Got to get some women in here, even as I'm saying that. Like, got to get some women or at least some guys with, you know, more atypical names than John, Bob, and Scott. But I'm glad to have them. I'm glad to have you. I would give you a quote, but Jessica Wilbanks said so many beautiful things. I'm not going to clutter it up. I'll give you a quote next time. For now, I just want you to know I'm glad you're alive at the same time I am. And uh, see you next time on Humanize Me. For more on BART, go to bartcampolo.org. To leave a question in your own voice to be used in future shows, call the Humanize Me Q line at 424-291-2092. That's 424-291-2092. Humanize Me is a production of Jax Media. You could be larger than life